welcome to Contourcast. My name is Kat Boyd and I am joined as ever with my lovely co-host David Jameson. Hi, how's it going? It's going fine. We're also joined this episode with a very special guest. It's actually quite rare for us to have guests on. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. They haven't been in our own strange brand of Trotsky sect. Usually like <laughs> Jonathan Shafi, Pete Romand, people who were in the ISV. Um, but today we have a real live guest. Um, we're joined by George Kerevan, who is a member of the Contour Editorial Board and a long time member of the SNP. Uh, welcome, George. Hi guys. Hi. Good Hi. to be here. Um, yes, I'm, an, I'm an ancient well. member of, of, of the SNP. I've, I've clocked up almost 25 years, so I think I must be one of the oldest members now. Oh, 25 years. Do you get like a, do you get a badge or an honour or something? A clock. A clock. <laughs> um, so no, sadly no. Sadly no. Sadly not. Um, well, we wanted to get you on the pod because you've written um, a rather an exciting article for the Contour website um, called SMP at the Crossroads. Um, so I don't, I mean, look, we've got listeners who will not have read this piece, um, although it has been shared a lot on social media. It's causing quite a bit of, uh, a bit of chatter, if you like. Um, so I don't know if you maybe want to kick us off by just telling us a couple of like the core points of the article for um, our lazy listeners who haven't read it yet. Sure, sure thing. I mean, I've been told that the grey men in kilts are coming for me after what I've written, which is a bit <laughs> of a surprise because all I have done is try and summarise some of the private discussions that go on inside the SNP and have gone on inside the SNP since the um, general election in 2017. And you'll remember um, the SNP lost quite a few seats at that point, still a majority party in Scotland. Uh, But um, Nicola Sturgeon, the first minister at that point, closed down the uh, campaign for a second referendum, which the party had been fired up for and had spent a year knocking on doors, collecting signatures. Um, and so the, there's something going on at the top of the party that the membership are increasingly unhappy with. Uh, basically, I've tried to make two points. One is that um, the party, uh, has, has, at, a, at a government level, has swung increasingly to the right and has begun to accommodate a big business in quite a significant and a dangerous way compared to the time when I joined the party in the in the 1990s, Alex Salmon, then leader, his project was to make the party a social democratic party, to move it to the left of Labour, because that was the only way in which the SNP uh, could actually become a majority and drive forward to independence. That was a project I felt comfortable with. Uh, and I know you guys might disagree with me, but I, since then I've seen the SNP essentially as a social democratic party. But in government, in the last 13 years, it has moved, and particularly since the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, took over, has moved dramatically to the right and begun to accommodate big business. And I've given a whole series of examples of that. The last one being, of course, that the, uh, the, the, the chair of the committee that Nicola appointed to advise on rebooting the economy after um, the COVID lockdown 
uh, is led by um, uh, Benny Higgins, ex-banker and chair of the Buclua Street Estates, which is the, the biggest feudal landowner in Scotland. The point is that um, uh, in, in the shift to the right of the, of the, of the, of the, of the present SNP government isn't a matter of personalities. The Scottish economy has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. Um, it's been hollowed out. It's become completely dependent on servicing uh, a foreign, uh, a globalized economy. It's been hollowed out. So actually what Scotland sells abroad now, it's an extractive economy. We sell food, we sell raw materials, we sell oil. I mean, we don't make things. So it's become a very dependent economy, dependent on foreign capital and foreign markets in a very direct organic way. Now, you either stand against that if you're, if you're, if you're a left-wing government, uh, and try and fight that and try and make, make some local space for local jobs um, or you give way to it and the, 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 my criticism in the article of, 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 the, of the SNP government is that it's given way to that globalist economy and in fact it's, it's, it's political its economic project is to reinforce that so you've got that going on the other thing in the article just to finish off uh, uh, broad brush is that um, the, the, the SNP government has, because it's been there for 13 years and it's got over 50% in the polls. I mean, where else in the Western world have you got a government that's been in power for that long and is that hegemonic? But it's created a bureaucracy that essentially has become self-serving and self-replicating within the party. Quarter of, 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 the, um, of the MSPs at Holyrood are ex-staffers of the SNP. So I, before my very eyes, I've watched this party, which was a movement and for all its faults was a popular movement aimed at trying to move to an independent Scotland, which would be a progressive Scotland in some sense. This party has become bureaucratized and self-serving and therefore conservative to a, with small c to a degree. And therefore it, it, it separated itself uh, from the mass movement that's out in the streets fighting marching for independence. And that, that divide is what is new. And it's a divide everybody knows and the, the movement talks about it all the time just not been talked about in public and I think the very fact that I've said that in the articles lifted the lid on a debate that's been long long kind of brewing away and reaching boiling point. So you make this point in the article where you mention this the like the the, the demographic composition of the SNP MSPs and you do say like for example Labour, Scottish Labour is not much better I think that the core point you're trying to make, and I'm sure you correct me if, if I pick this up wrong, is like it's the velocity at which this has happened. So as a long-standing member of the SNP, you have actually witnessed this. So whilst there are like there's a broader history of like something like the Labour Party, its traditions, where that started, and like spanning you know, the last hundred years, the development of that party and its capitulation and accommodation with big business and capital interests, that's actually, for from what you're saying, I see is like, obviously a different history, but has been compacted. The professionalization of politics is something that's happening to every party, I think, in, yeah. the, like in the West, essentially. I mean, it's, it's happening everywhere. I think that that, like, there's a whole discussion about populism to be had there, but what you're talking about is really this condensed professionalization on a very kind of quick scale um, or quick timeline rather and um, that's happened within the SNP and you've borne witness to that yeah. And Absolutely. Just, sorry just to add to that I think there's another element here which is that 
yeah, it's, it's this, it's this long-run process for most social democratic parties has happened within a few years because the SNP only really gained a mass working class base in 2015. So we've seen that whole process of from mass party with a, with a mass working class vote share to highly professionalised, pro-capital, upper-middle-class party in no time at all. Yes, I mean, and, and it happened so fast, I think most of us didn't realise what was going on. I mean, when, when I joined the party in the 90s, I think membership was four or five thousand. Um, it was, um, it had a scattering of, of, of um, uh, local councillors, but essentially you didn't join uh, the SNP to get a job. Uh, I mean, you, you, it was like, like any, any, you know, small left-wing group. I mean, you, 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 you were in it for the passion and, and, uh, and the long-term uh, possibility that there might be change. Um, and to suddenly go from, you know, to being a mass party, and a mass party, um, uh, of course, therefore breeds an apparatus because it has money uh, and is therefore able to organize, you know, recruit lots of full-timers. Uh, and that happened in such at such a speed. Now, parliamentary politics, by definition, um, is is run by representatives who are separate from the people. That's that's why I think ultimately it becomes undemocratic. Um, and, and all all mass parliamentary organisations end up that way, and the and the process goes by whereby the um, you know, um, a professional middle-class layer takes over the party. And we've seen that in Labour. I mean, Labour Party, in, you know, even, even in the 50s and 60s, uh, had still had probably a majority of, uh, of, of, of working-class trade union members, at least some point in their life. Um, but it gradually moved away from that. It took several generations, but the SNP has gone from, 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 from a, being a, a small mass movement with no parliamentary representation or hardly any, to being essentially a mass party, it's called the hegemonic party, it's called, but run by a bureaucratic apparatus um, that actually has very little uh, history in the mass movement. And therefore its politics have become much more electoral and it's about how do we protect uh, this majority we've got, how do we not uh, annoy people, how do we not um, annoy the bureaucracy so that we, go, we get struck off the list and don't become the candidate next time. Uh, and everyone knows that's happening, and everyone knows that anybody who steps out of line and criticises uh, is marked down. And, it, it, and we've also, just to finish, we've got, we've got, of course, we've got this very strange phenomenon, and I have to say it, because everyone talks about it in private, that the chief executive of the party, who runs the party apparatus, and is very well paid, uh, Pete Murrell, is also, of course, the husband of um, uh, Nicola Sturgeon. Now, nothing wrong with that per se, uh, but it does concentrate an awful lot of power. And Pete's been there for over 20 years. I mean, we're talking about a longevity of the bureaucracy, and, and, and uh, which is rare in any political party that I know. And it just puts an awful lot of power, a lot of dangerous power, uh, in the hands of the upper leadership. It's definitely got a kind of, it's the, the basis for an excellent Scottish version of Borgen, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. Or, or, or Baron Noir. I don't know if anybody's watched Baron Noir, which is, which is the French political thriller. Oh, um, no. Which is really no hold bar. Now, no hold bar. It's really, really great, great fun. I don't think the, we're that bad yet. The thing <laughs> that I think um, has caught a lot of um, the kind of public imagination around the article is the point about the tendency of 
political parties to bureaucratize and then reproduce themselves. You know what I mean? That, that, that classic bureaucratic tendency to, once you're in a position where you're extracting material wealth from the state, um, there's obviously a, a propensity just to keep that on and keep it rolling. Um, I think that the important point about that and the reason that people are worried about it is, um, I mean, I think people are coming round to, coming to terms with the fact that both that and the pro-business orientation are at odds with independence, that they, or that the very least, it greatly complicates the relationship between the party and independence. Um, and for a lot of people, I think that's been a, a slow dawning recognition, but it shouldn't surprise us because it's, as you point out in the article, there are obvious parallels with th things like social democracy as a global, as a Western tradition uh, in general. The way I think of it is, Keir Starmer probably does want a better society. I'm sure he does. I'm sure he's a nice guy, right? I'm sure he'd say he's a socialist and, he, and the thing that he wants is socialism. But it's like, it's, a, it's something that they want that's on the horizon. It's always just out of reach. And it's an organizing principle for the party. Everyone who's in the Labour Party says that they want this better society. But the way to get there is endless compromise with big business, with the media, with the state, and so on. And eventually, the journey um, obliterates the destination. It, you know what I mean? You just use that to justify an endless uh, cycle of, of elections and, and, and so on. Um, I mean, is, is that what we're now seeing? Um, well, yes, in the sense that the, 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 the model that the party leadership has at the moment is that eventually it will win an, an absolute majority in favour of independence, which is a good idea, of course. And eventually that will, the, the moral impact of that majority will force London and force Boris who, who, or whoever is in charge down there to concede a second referendum and will win that. So it, it, it's, it's a stages process and it's reliant on everyone, you know, bowing to the democratic will. Um, the trouble is it misses out um, the key thing that, that I think three of us would agree on, um, that power in, in capitalist society um, is unevenly distributed, that there are people who own, who own the means of production and who will protect that against any democratic forces that are out there uh, and they will resist. So there is no guarantee whatsoever that London will accept a second referendum and then what do you do? Um, uh, uh, and, I think that all that the present SNP leadership is committed to do is endless, endless um, uh, waiting around. And I think that will ultimately de demoralize uh, the movement. Um, so we have to be prepared to accept the sovereignty of the Scottish people and react to that. So I think that, that uh, at some point, if we are not granted a second referendum, then we'll have to hold our own, and we'll have to possibly move to a stage of, of mass civil disobedience. Now, it's the very fact that the, the, the current leadership, because of its nature, because it is so wedded to um, um, parliamentary process, um, it, will, it will stand eventually against the mass movement, which is why Nicola, of course, closed down uh, the referendum campaign in 2017 uh, and split the movement. Um, and that leads me to the conclusion that, that the movement has to reorganize itself separately um, from the SNP leadership. Um, I, I ultimately, if you want to 
independence, then you, you just have to take it for yourself and not rely on a parliamentary process um, that ultimately hands power to those who own and those who organize the state. I mean, uh, th this, in, in a sense, these, these problems were always going to come up because there are no examples in the world of independence movements achieving their aims through pu purely parliamentary routes. There are no examples of it. Um, as you say, states don't, uh, they don't disintegrate themselves <laughs> deliberately. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't just throw their power out the window. Um, and, uh, but yeah, the, the kind of point of the argument you're making is that there are material incentives inside the SNP against ever acknowledging that reality or ever taking that kind of route. I'm sure as well that people listening to that will be like, um, do you remember people really kicked up a fanfare when you talked about, you were just throwing ideas around and said something about um, direct action on the tubes in London or something like that, right? So I'm sure that people are, 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 are going to be cock-a-hoop about that. But the point is, is that... Um, a government that wants independence from a wider transnational bloc needs to have a strategy of escalating tension between itself and the central power. You know, that's, that's how independence movements work. Um, and the thing that I've been saying to people about this for years is you'd know if there was a plan to move towards independence imminently because we'd already be in that strategy the Scottish government would already be saying to the MOD, we're not going to let you use our roads from this day on. The Scottish government would already be withdrawing consent from areas of civic participation with the British state where it could. That's what we're talking about. And it would, and this, here's the other thing. The first minister would be on those independence marches that have been going on for years. You'd know if we were heading for independence because the government would be galvanizing the street level movement. It would be talking up the democratic credentials of the movement and the Scottish population endlessly. Yeah, I think that that's a really important point. So when I picture some of the, like, and this is before the illegal referendum in Catalonia, I remember seeing like the demonstrations and it was the leaders of what is the kind of like the, the bourgeois Catalan independence party. Like they're not, they're not left, they're not radicals in, in that sense. Can even, I can see the picture in my mind of those political leaders in Catalonia at the front of those marches as part of the movement and the ones in Scotland where it's just the movement. It's, a, it's leaderless essentially. Mm. I mean, people have forgotten, I put a little of this in the article, there's a long history of kind of Jacobin resistance led by the SNP. I mean, SNP leaders have gone to jail. Um, and I imagine any of the current leadership, you know, being faced with that. Um, there was a long period in the 50s and 60s where the SNP, in order to get publicity, ran a, pilot, a pirate radio station. And I mean, I remember listening to it, you know, when, when, when the BBC television closed down of an evening and the, the, the spot would come up and telling you that they'd gone off air. Suddenly the SNP radio, Radio Free Scotland would break in. And you know, tens of thousands of people listened to this and it was totally illegal. Um, I mean, can you imagine the party doing that now, running a, I mean, a pirate television service now? So uh, there was an element in which the party was willing to contest the status quo. The problem now is that if anything, the party has become the status quo. And the, the biggest criticism I have had about the article 
uh, is from people saying you can't introduce the issue of class because um, in Scotland because we're, we're all Scots and independence is about for everybody. And I keep having to tell people the resistance to independence comes from within Scotland and within the owning class and within the aristocracy and the landowners who simply prefer the, the present setup because it protects the property. And once you start pandering to them and thinking, well, we could win over, you know, um, the, the, the Dukes of Buccleu, um, the, the present Duke's grandfather was a key supporter of Hitler. Um, we can win over the aristocracy, we can win over the upper middle class, and then we'll, you know, that will give us independence. I tell you, that will, that will not get us independence because these are the very people who've always resisted uh, a change because they're frightened of what a progressive Scotland would bring in terms of taking over the land and, and taking over the means of production. Um, and uh, above all, if we go down that road of pandering to those who own property, uh, then you will not turn out the people who don't own property when it comes to a referendum. The people in the housing schemes who voted in 2014 uh, in Glasgow, in Dundee, for independence, they are the people who, if they don't think that their lives are going to change materially with independence, they will not vote, they will not support, and we will actually lose the heart of the movement. And that's what I'm worried about uh, with the present direction of the leadership of the SNP. I mean, I think that I think this gets to like a key point within like all the discussions that need to be had more broadly about the the prospects for independence. So that I I think that that can't be said often enough that opposition to independence comes from within Scotland, and it is a question of class, and the the upper class, the the. This, what I would term like the establishment, if you like. So the Duke of Buccleu, um, capitalist interests around finance, around like the city of Edinburgh. Um, these orientate, these interests orientate on a form of Britishness, fundamentally. Like the Duke of Buccleu, I think is a really obvious example, but like that, um, like the kind of like feudal land owning class, it's an orientation of Britishness and it served Britishness serves their interests and we just have to be honest about that. My view is that the working class in any situation have only one strategic advantage. So we may have other advantages but strategically we have one advantage and that is sheer raw numbers. They're all like and when it comes down to like a vote then we'll always have more people. Like we just, that's our strategic advantage is in terms of numbers. There will always be more of us, and I use us in the broadest possible sense, um, than there are of the landowners and those who are part of that, that operational class. I think what's important about your article is that you're not making a a kind of left, right, or goodies versus baddies argument, um, to, to reference a previous pod, um, about Salmond versus Sturgeon. Because obviously Alex Salmond's politics were very much of that Scottish establishment that orientates on Britishness. I mean, his relationship with RBS, for example. But what his um, political way of operating, I think, got right, is that the space for the independence movement and its parties has to be to the left of Labour in Scotland. 
is we're now seeing that the makeup of the Scottish Labour Party, its base, is, is just not there anymore to be the left voice. And this is where we start, I think, getting into, like, I see these debates online about, you know, SNP and people trying to drag out the old Tartan Tory stuff. And it just feels very tired because the reality is, is that the SNP governments that we've had in Scotland um, over the last, like, basically since Salmond and the majority in Holyrood, these are the most left-wing governments that have we have had in Holyrood because Labour's record, Labour and Liberals in coalition in Holyrood, like, their record is appalling. Their record is terrible in that parliament when you had people, you know, voting, breaking the whip, Jeremy Corbyn down at Westminster against the Warden Act. You had Labour politicians in the Scottish Parliament voting to endorse that strategy. Um, so I think that the only space really is to the left of the Labour Party, but that that is obviously not Nicola Sturgeon's project. So I think that it's important that we that we don't see that people don't read this article in a way which I think it was not intended, which is like salmon project good, sturgeon project bad. It's not about these personalities, it's about what is happening and the development of the party over this very short period of time. Would you say that's right? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the article wasn't, wasn't endorsing any particular project um, <laughs> uh, within, within, within the, the SNP apparatus at the moment. I, listen, I, let's be very clear, the, the, the Scottish National Party, though I agree, though my, I've always argued in, in, in the last generation it's been a social democratic party that's consciously built links um, with the, 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 the labour movement, um, that's been broadly progressive, um, um, but it is not an anti-capitalist party. It, there's no sense of rupture. Um, it, like all reformist parties, and I don't, I don't use reformist as, a, as, a, as an epithet, as a, uh, but it's reformist. It's, it's trying to balance progressive change within a system that's still ba based on, um, on capitalist property relationships, where we still have private property and private individuals and private banks directing the, the flow of investment. Uh, only for profit and not for, for, for human need. Um, and so the SNP is in exactly the same position as, as the Labour Party. It's trying to manage a system that's fundamentally unmanageable. And there, but there is a wing, a strong wing of, 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 of the SNP, same in the Labour Party, who want a break uh, with capitalism and who see the prospect of independence um, not as, a, as, a, as, a, as an instant panacea, but just as a way of breaking with a British state and giving sufficient room that we might actually proceed beyond that to a rupture um, with capitalist relations as a whole. Now, um, in, in, from, from that perspective, that's why I want to introduce the whole issue of class. Not as a, I'm, you know, I'm working class, therefore I'm good, and you're middle class, therefore you're bad. Um, because we, I mean, we, I want, I mean, the SNP from the left has the possibility of actually leading the nation, the whole nation. Um, uh, and all, and all, all its constituent parts in, in a progressive direction. But if, if we're to make that break, we have to recognize the institutions of power that exist. Now, there's a lot of people who think that class, I'm talking about class is old fashioned, and, and, and you've, just, you've just alluded to it, Kat. There's a, there's a, there's a contemporary way of, of trying to understand the world, which is on a very personalized identity basis, you know, um, that, that, that take, if you take class out, what, I mean, how do you explain 
racism? How do you explain sexism? Are you trying to explain it in, in terms of, you know, a, 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 a groups of people who've just got the wrong ideas? Yeah. And we either convince them or we, you know, or we badmouth or whatever. But it's not, I mean, people end up in, in power structures and it's the power structures that we have to change. And that's what I was trying to uh, inject back into the argument uh, in, 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 in the SNP. Because I think we've been, you know, I, th I think people are looking at, too, you know, looking at present divisions through, through the prism of, of, a, of a full identity politics, which is based too much on, on the individual rather than seeing that we're all caught up in a vortex class relationships unless we change the power structures then we can't get, get down to the level of individual human behavior that's why i think this article is such a breath of fresh air and yeah. that's why i think that this debate is the most healthy one for the independence movement right uh this is the only argument i've seen against the article and i've barely seen it like i, I do want to emphasize 95% of reactions to this article that I've seen are overwhelmingly positive because I think it captured what a lot of people were thinking. But a couple of folk have said, what was all this 70s language about, about class, right? Class is an objective reality of our world. It doesn't date. It doesn't age, right? There are social classes just as much now as there were in the 1970s or 5,000 years ago in Babylon. Right? It's a basic structural fact of the societies that we live in with profound implications for everything that happens. And it's a scientific category. We're talking about social science here. We're talking about uh, trying to come to, to grips with a rational understanding for the motions of what, from the outside, appear, societies often appear irrational in the way they operate, right? And what too many people in, in commentators, actually, people in the media, for example, with the independence movement do is they sow mystifications. They, sow, they, they look at it as an irrational event. You know, the media has always viewed the Scottish independence movement as fundamentally irrational. Backward looking, where did this come from? It's the 21st century. Why are you talking about national independence in a globalized world? Um, and then they sow their confusion back in, into society. And they are confused. Like, uh, as we've been discussing, Scottish independence, it, it's a response to many things. Um, but one of the things that it's a response to is globalization, precisely. It's, it's raising questions of democratic power in a society where democracy has become very weakened and hollowed out by economic and class developments. Um, now, as you say, and some of the people who I've seen complain about the article want to steer it back into mystification. They want to say, stop talking about class. Let's start talking about the personalities of Nicholas Sturgeon and Alex Salmond again, because that's real. Um, I actually, before this article came out, uh, I saw Andrew Wilson, uh, who you mentioned in the article as an important kind of interlocutor between the Scottish government and the ruling elite. In response to the, the protests on the border, I don't know if you saw this, and this caused a great excitement amongst precisely this kind of cohort of mystifiers. Look at these crazies down on the border. You can't explain it. It's wild. Uh, and Andrew Wilson actually said, ignore that stuff at the border. The thing that matters is the leader. The leader has the right ideas, right? Nicholas Sturgeon mm -hmm. has the right ideas. Our leaders are the best, right? I mean, that is a totally regressive view of human developments. That the really important that the only way you can analyze society is understanding 
the personality and the worldview of a handful of professional political personalities. Um, and yet, so many people, including some people who think they're on the, uh, on the left of politics, are determined to erase the meaning of mass movements, the meaning of mass political developments, uh, and boil everything down to a battle of personalities in the professional uh, sphere. Now, the, the way, the way to, to stop the intellectual degeneration around the independence movement mm -hmm. is precisely the kind of arguments that you forwarded here. And I think that's basically what we want to do with Conta. We want to stop, stop that kind of rot. And I don't think it comes from the movement. I, like I say, I think it comes from a layer of people whose job it is to interpret events in a way which is kind to the establishment. Um, and the best way to combat that and the best way to understand the problems that face our movement is through a scientific analysis, it is through this kind of... Uh, it is through this kind of lens. Uh, and that's why I think it's just been a really important piece. And it's just cut through all the pish. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> to use a scientific term. To, yeah, to use a scientific, scientific term. term as, as a social pish. scientist, pish. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, people can see that. People can recognize an, objective, an objectively correct analysis when they see it. You know what I mean? And the mm. only people who are disappointed by that are people who are disappointed that your article wasn't a, a sort of gossip column? Or do you know what I mean? Or just some mudslinging? Uh, we, we do have a political culture where some people have come to enjoy the gutter. Um, but uh, I was very, I, I'm just very glad that we've introduced a bit of serious politics back into that, into that kind of discourse. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, I think that this is starting to um, get into quite an interesting conversation about the the strategy and tactics for the left more broadly so actually i think that there is a there's a notable turning point in the 80s where there's a disempowered left i'm thinking of like britain under thatcher um particularly like during that period where like in the like community organizations and trade unions and in those kind of like actually organized parts of the working class when Thatcher's in power, there's the import of big, particular big organizing ideas and tactical ideas from America that are based around like the teachings of Saul Alinsky. And one of Alinsky's like main um, tactics for building strategy and building power in working class communities is to uh, to create a target and find a monster. So. You basically you find the figurehead and you you monsterize them in order to make them the embodiment of what you're fighting against. So let's take someone like like Thatcher. So her image begins to represent um, everything that's wrong with society. I mean the right do this as well, but from a position of power and authority. So they might monster uh, Chavez, for example. But what I've noticed is that since the 1980s, this has continually been the left's approach is to find the individual, personalize it and project it onto, onto the individual, which has led to at the same, so I'm not saying that it's all the fault of these ideas or the strategy, but when at the same time you have a systematic um, weakening and dismantling of working class organization, and that's all you're left to rely on. And you aren't like raising the intellectual level 
And instead, all we have is, well, if we can, you know, go for the king and kill the king of this, if we can get rid of Blair or if we can get rid of that, yes. she dies, then, then that's the end of that project. And we don't have a left that's organized in such a way to raise the intellectual level, to see things through the prism of class and to really be able to understand the like the abstract picture rather than this kind of concrete um, bogeyman, if you like. Yeah, and it, it works the other way that the left um, raises individuals onto pillars. You know, we have a leader and we'll follow the leader. And you can see this in, in the SNP, the, the, you know, Nick, I've known Nicola Sturgeon for, for, for a quarter of a century. Um, and, you know, when, when she and I were first in the movement, the Scottish National Party was very democratic. It was a bit, you know, it was, it was kind of Presbyterian, you know. Um, it was, you know, um, I mean, it was the, it was the congregation uh, had all the power. Uh, and so the, the titular, titular leader of the party um, was just the first amongst equals. It did, because you were the leader of the party, it didn't make you anything special. Uh, but at the moment, we're in a strange kind of view uh, in, 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 in the, the, the national movement as well as the SNP as a party, where Nicola's been raised to, you know, the, everything depends on Nicola. We've had, you know, she's been so wonderful in, during the, um, uh, uh, the pandemic and she's played a, a good game. I don't, I don't dismiss that. Um, but movements are not about the leaders. They don't, they're not dependent on the leaders. And the danger is if you do it, if you go down that, that, that kind of populist road, you lose politics. Now, the SNP in the 70s and 80s, there was a whole talented group of people who actually gave the party some serious left-wing credentials. People like Stephen Maxwell, Margot MacDonald, a fond member, who's an old friend, um, uh, um, uh, Gavin Kennedy, who was uh, ex-trot. Um, and they all put, he put together the party's um, economic policies. Um, the, 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 the SNP's view was, you know, we want independence, so if, if we want independence for Scotland, we want independence for people, local communities, so we'll be a decentralising party. So the whole emphasis of, of policy uh, was moving power away from central government, even in a, an independent state, and giving it to people in local communities. It was very, so to that extent, it, was, it, it had, a, had a sense of what socialism was all about. That's all gone. I mean, it's... It, it, the, 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 the SNP at the moment is it the, well, what policy is all about is centralizing power uh, within, the, within the party and, and the government machine. Uh, and the party's abandoned all, all, its, all its previous policies about decentralizing to local government to uh, decentralizing tax powers. Um, so if, if, once you concentrate on the leader, once, it become, once you have personality politics, um, then policy disappears and uh, a process of giving power genuinely to people disappears. Uh, and that is very dangerous for the SNP. Uh, this centralization of power and centralization of, of, of power around the, the, the charismatic individual uh, is extraordinarily dangerous. And it <clears throat> flies in the face of everything the party stood for in 50 years. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that is, you know, of, there, I think <clears throat> there's lots of reasons that this article has been um, popular. Um, I think that <clears throat> the, you have a man, you have articulated the private sort of um, the kind of the whispered conversations, the the ones that don't happen online, and you've been able to put that together, but not as a gossip column. I think that's what's refreshing about it. You know, I've seen a lot of people sharing it, being like, "Yeah, like this is what people are saying. This is the reality." Um, these are the these are the politics behind those conversations. My frustration in, in Scottish politics is that 
whenever there's a critique from the, particularly I think in the, the Scottish Labour Party of the SNP, it always ends up coming out through the national, the national question. It always, that tension always plays out on the question of independence. And that's part of the problem in our, pol in our parliament is that it feels really stale because these, because you don't have a Labour Party who is able to have a pro-independence policy. You don't have a left-wing party that's based in class, that's pro-independence, that is able to expose these types of arguments out in public. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't exist. So I think that that's another sort of aspect to what you've written so far. I know that there is part two coming. Um, I think that that's what's really sort of drawn people towards it. Well, here's my challenge to, to, to the SNP membership and the wider movement. Once we get independence, if we get independence any time soon, the SNP should be dissolved as a party and we should create a class party uh, that will represent the working people of Scotland. And when we get independence, independence should, the blueprint for independence and the, and the, uh, the structure of the nation post-independence should not be decided by the SNP leadership and the special advisors who make policy now. We should vote for a constitutional convention where people can vote for representatives of their class and that, will, that convention should draw up the constitution for the country post-independence. At the moment, everything is working towards the present SNP leadership team and their special advisors running the country post-independence and they will not run it in the interests of, of the working people. They will not break with capitalism. They will run it on the basis of supporting the Benny Higgins of this world. And let me just say, there are a lot of people in the party and the wider movement who will not stand for that. Well said. Well said. Um, but of course, as, as you say, as, because, because it's always a response to this kind of article of, well, then, you know, this may all be true. I've even seen, say, seen people say this about the article. This may all be true, but let's just wait until after independence and then we'll hash these problems out. But the point that you made in the article is there's not a complete disconnect between means and ends. If you don't have a vision that can empower the, the country that, that people want to fight for, and then on the other hand, you have a leadership which is tying all of its strategic attitudes towards winning over big business and layers of like the upper middle class and so on, you're not going to put yourself in a position to win independence anyway. I mean, this is, this is a, a, I think, an argument that needs to be put around more. There is a relationship between what you say you're fighting for and whether you ever achieve it whether you can galvanize the, the democratic force, the sheer democratic force that you need um, to, to, to break a state uh, from a state like the British state, which has been foundational to the world system, which has been here for as long uh, just about as capitalism has mm -hmm. as a system. And the other thing that I think, I mean, I do think as well, the whole movement, us, everyone, needs a degree of intellectual humility in all this because what we're talking about doing has <clears> never been done before. No one, like, Scottish independence obviously <clears> has <throat> never happened before. The, um, the instances of national independence movements winning that we have from around the world happened in a very different context, generally. The post-war world obviously saw a huge upsurge in anti-colonial struggles, new nation states being founded and so on. But that was generally on the basis of these were countries in the underdeveloped world dominated by foreign domination, typically from Europe. Um, 
and it was very often you know these were armed struggles there were wars of independence and 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 so on now obviously scotland and catalonia and quebec and so forth are not in this in that same paradigm but also as i say we are talking about a highly particular situation where scotland's part of the global center of the system um and it wants to break up such an important state to that system and britain is like people sometimes downplay this because we're dwarfed by america and china and so on but the british state is an is a very important node in the global system particularly if you look at things like finance um, but actually, Britain still plays a very important role as like the, the chief lieutenant of the United States. It plays a very important role on the European continent, whether we're in the EU or out of it. Um, like it, this is this is a serious task that requires enormous intellectual and practical investment, and it, and it, and it requires us to be in it for the for for the long haul as well. We have to ask ourselves the question: What are we prepared to do? To, for for Scottish independence, I think it's a vitally important question that everyone has to has to ask themselves. Um, and at the very least, it's going to take the kind of internal debate that you've introduced. <laughs> like if because sometimes you get people saying, "Don't rock the boat. We're so close. We've been hearing this for years. The the independence movement is perfect, except for internal divisions." Wrong. Like they are they are an, an inevitable part of any movement that has a goal. Um, and this is the least of what we're going to have to do if we actually want to achieve the goal of, of, of national independence is have a robust internal uh, debate. Uh, and I just think this article's been like so good at resetting that debate to where it needs to be rather than some of the places it's drifted off to uh, in, in recent years. This to me is, is that, you know, a big part of the heart of the debate that we need to be having. Can I, I mean, I, I agree with all that. And I just, let me just say that folk of my generation joined the, the SNP and the national movement, not for independence per se, but in order to change Scotland. Um, if you reduce the argument, well, let's just have independence and then everything will, you know, we, we'll all go our own way and everything, you know, will be hunky-dory. Doesn't happen that way. Um, the, the SNP leadership is already making concessions for post-independence such as keeping the pound, keeping the existing banking system, and therefore giving power to the existing bankers who have misinvested and ruined the economy. Um, you, you already made sure that the post-Scotland, post-independent Scotland, won't be any different. And if you say that, the people are not dumb. People in the housing estates know that, and they won't come and vote, and they won't come to the we will just turn them off politics altogether. Politics is about achieving goals, about changing things. And that's what the, the national movement is about. We don't just want independence for the sake of it. Let me, let me just big, big message to everybody watching this. We are, want independence so we can abolish capitalism. Excellent. I mean, like, I, I'm voting for that. <laughs> Although I guess I'm not really like I'm not, I'm not sort of a, I'm not on the fence really. Am I? Um, I mean, I, I, we, how long have we got? A wee bit more time? Yeah, I mean, we've got no, no, wee story. Let me tell you a wee story because this is this goes back to the the fundamentals of this debate. Is is politics simply about individuals? and individual aspirations and individual identity, what individual want to achieve and they get good people and bad people, or is it about broader historic forces, capitalism? Alex Salmond um, uh, uh, 
Alex, Alex always believes that he can persuade people. That's no bad thing in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a politician, which is why he tried. To, he thought he could persuade Trump, met his match over the over the um, over the golf course now. But during the, the run up to the referendum in uh, in uh, 2014, I know this because Alex told me. Um, he went round all the bankers, key bankers in Scotland, and even some down south. And he tried. He said, "Look, independence is not going to be a threat to the banking community. We're going to help the banks. We're going to, no, I've been, I've been, I was an RBS for ten years." And so Alex just said, just stay out of the, of the independence debate, just sit on the sidelines. And he got, actually got most of the bankers to say, okay, yeah, no, no, we, we're here to make money. You know, we're not, not want to be involved in politics. Get on with it. So Alex thought he had neutralized the banking community in the independence debate. Until it began to look like we were going to win uh, the 2014 referendum. And uh, George Osborne, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, panicked, and David Cameron panicked. Mm. And they started phoning, Osborne in particular, started phoning around the bankers, having the bankers in uh, to, to Downing Street, and say, you cannot do this. You have to come out against independence. And if, I mean, if you know RB, RBS headquarters in London, is just the other end of Whitehall from Downing Street. It's like it's a five-minute walk. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it's as close as it could possibly be to the centre of power. Um, so Osborne persuaded the bankers to renege on the, uh, 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 on the assurances they give to Salmon and come out against independence in a very public way. And of course, RBS was saying, you know, we'll move our headquarters, which is something we did. Now, I, I mean, Alec phoned me, he was, he, was, he, was, he was apoplectic. And he thought this was bad form on the part of, um, of Osborne and the British government to, to the, talk to the bankers behind his back. But of course, the bankers, in the end, if the, you know, if the British state says you're, you know, we're in trouble here, guys, you have to save the British state. You have to stick the knife into Alex Salmon, the Scottish independence movement, and come out and say that as independence, you'll leave Scotland. Well, that is the power structure, ladies and gentlemen. That's how it works. Anybody who thinks sitting around a table and persuading nice bankers to stay in the sidelines is going to work, even someone as persuasive as Alex Salmon, it doesn't happen. That's not how it works. The power structures prevail over the individual, which is why we have to change the power structures. I mean, I think that that's a really, that's a really good and clear message. Um, and I, I enjoy your anecdotes as well. <laughs> the, the pepper your article, I, I did like that. We could turn this into a regular series. Uh, Fireside with George. <laughs> Fireside with George Caravan. Stories from. Yeah. Let me tell you, if you live long enough, you have stories. There's <laughs> not any given God-given talent. It's just age. <laughs> um, well, David, I don't know if there's anything else that you want to. Except, except to say to folk, you know. We are, we are, like I said with, with Connor, we are trying to um, improve the, the standard of debate and, and cast a spotlight on the really vital issues facing the country. And what I still think, you know, there's been a lot of setbacks for, for left-wing politics, I suppose, around, around the world in, in the last couple of years. Nonetheless, I, I think this is a really crucial period, both in Scotland and around the world. And we're trying to... Um, bring something to that in terms of clear-sighted analysis of the kind that George uh, deployed. So just to invite people to get involved in that, in that project, to write for it, to get in contact with us. Um, I mean, we've spent lockdown, I suppose, trying to, trying to build it up and so on. And uh, so we may, may be in a position to kind of expand 
outside of my kitchen <laughs> with terrible, <laughs> where there's terrible sound quality in the, in the, in the coming uh, months. So just really to in, in, invite people to that, you know, to get involved in that project because I think it's important. Um, so yeah, beyond that, not really. Um, any last concluding remarks, start? Uh, yes, there are lots and lots of good articles in, on, on Conta, so <laughs> go and read them. <laughs> um, thanks very much, um, and thanks for uh, your time today. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. It was a really enjoyable discussion. Um, I guess that's as, as done now. Um, what I will say is um, people can go and read the article, SMP at the crossroads at uh, contour.co.uk. Um, you can also there, you can subscribe to um, Contour, you can subscribe for updates and um, you can also make a donation throughout lockdown. We've been putting on a, a series of lectures. They're all up on our YouTube channel <clears throat> um, as well. So if you like the work that we're doing, want to support the work that we're doing, um, if you've enjoyed the, the podcast, then please do think about uh, giving us a, a donation. We would really like to um, to keep making these online events possible and also keep the podcast up and running and get David some soundproofing. So, <laughs> so if you can donate, then please do and um, please do check out the other great articles that we have on the website. And I'll just finish with reminding people that uh, tomorrow Contour is sponsoring an event with a number of other organisations um, which is a celebration of the life and contributions of Neil Davidson, who died in May this year. Um, Neil was a pioneering Marxist uh, intellectual, an organic intellectual and an activist um, who had a very significant impact on my own thinking and my own activism. And I think his intellectual legacy in Scotland um, should be preserved. And I, I think that's part of the project of Contour as well. So. Comrades and friends from around the world are taking part in an online event at, on Saturday, the 11th of July, that's tomorrow. And we will get this pod out um, in the next couple of hours or so. Um, and it's at 8 p.m. UK time. Now, all the details for that event are on the Contour website, um, but I hope you'll be able to, to join us um, and, and remember Neil's life and his intellectual legacy as well. Um, so thanks very much everyone um, and we'll, we'll speak soon looking forward to part two George